announcements. If you have a Bible with you this morning, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, we'd be happy to let you borrow one. You just have to raise your hand real high, and the ushers will be happy and honored to let you borrow a Bible so you can read along and study the scriptures together. As I mentioned, today is the first Sunday of the month, so we will have a time of communion at the close of our service. This morning, as we're making our way through the book of Hebrews, most of you know this. Uh, if you're new or visiting this morning, welcome. We're blessed that you're here. We pick up where we left off from last Sunday at verse 17, and we will plot our way all the way down to verse 22. So verse 17 to 22. And, uh, and I entitled our, our message this morning, Faith for Family, Faith for Family. So if you are there in Hebrews 11, I'd like to invite you to stand with me this time. I'm going to read the scriptures aloud, and you can follow along in your Bibles. The author records for us, by faith, Abraham when he was tested, offered up Isaac, his son, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Now Abraham, verse 19, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Then we read by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Then by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. And then verse 22, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. Interesting section. We'll pause there and let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the day. Lord, I'm reminded of your word that tells us that we are not to be conformed to this world, but rather we should be transformed by the renewing of our mind through the power of your scriptures. And so, Lord, as we've read, as we stand now, as we pray, Lord, we ask that you might renew our minds, that you might revive our spirits, Lord, that you might refresh our, our bodies and, Lord, realign our hearts to yours. Lord, I pray that as the season of Christmas comes, Lord, help us not to get caught in all of the commercial busyness, but, Lord, help us to be intentional, to take moments of pause, to remember the the true meaning, and the fact that you came for us, Emmanuel, that God, you're with us, and Lord, you're with us today. And so we thank you for that, and Father, we pray again that you'd speak to our hearts, change us from the inside out. Lord, we thank you that you seek relationship with us, not religion, not rules and regulations, but Lord, a, a loving relationship. And so may we May we grow this morning into that. We thank you for our time. We ask and pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Would you take a moment and say hello to someone, and then you can have a seat.
<笑>おはようございます One of the things that、uh, I enjoy is I have the blessing and the opportunity to,、uh, from time to time, get to visit、uh, some of your homes and other people's homes.、Uh, one of the things that I enjoy, aside from the food and the fellowship and the company, is,、uh, is to open your fridge and look at the things. No, just kidding.、So. Is to、uh, see the,、uh, the assortment of framed family photos that might sit on your wall. Or perhaps even on a shelf.、Uh, it's fun to see some of the wedding photos, maybe some of the pictures of your kids when they were younger and how much they've grown, how much they've changed.、Uh, it's always a joy to see even some of the extended family that you have、uh, your grandmas and grandpas, or even great grandparents, and, and to hear some of the stories of, the,、uh, of those people and their, their backstory of the photo itself. or... You know, something happened or, you know, just about the family member. You know,、um, in our house, we, we have such pictures of Christy's、uh, grandpa and dad, and of course, my mom and, and others. And, you know, and we, when we look at these pictures, we can recount some of the hardships that、uh, our parents or perhaps our grandparents or great parents had to endure and go through. And yet, you know, they survived, they made it. Um, you know, they raised the family with so little or through some difficult circumstances. Or sometimes there's you know, the scandalous stuff that can be a little bit embarrassing. Like, oh, who's this person?、You're、like, oh, never, you don't want to know about that person. You know. <laughs> But still part of the family tree. And each picture and each photo, each person represents a story, represents a life that we can learn from, sometimes good, and hopefully more often than not.、Uh, Sometimes bad, but more often than not, hopefully mostly good. In, in this section of Hebrews, as we've been making our way through, the, the writer, the author, brings us, if you will, into a,、uh, a wall or to a wall of different portraits. They are the distant relatives of the Jewish people, the patriarchs and the matriarchs of the nation.、Uh, but We need to understand as we read this that they are also、uh, our family members of faith. That we too have a line, a, you know, a lineage to them. The Bible says that you and I have been adopted into the family of God. And so we come into this family of faith. And as we read about these people, yes, there was a,、uh, if you will, a bloodline that tied them to the original audience. But for us, we, we have a spiritual bloodline that ties us to them. Through the Lord Jesus Christ.、Uh, in some ways, this is our ancestry.com report.、Uh, we get to see the pictures of our great, great, great grandpa and, you know, and grandma and so, forth, so on and so forth. Now, a, a reminder of the reason why the author is recounting these things you remember that it was for the sake of encouragement to the original audience, it was the sake of edification. He's He's wanting to build them up. He's wanting to spur them on to say, hey, keep going. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's difficult. And then he begins to give these examples of endurance. Back in chapter 10 and verse 39, right before he 
pivots to chapter 11, he says, we are not like those who draw back or retreat back to the old life of perdition and sin. But we are those who believe. We are those who, who press forward and move forward to the saving of the soul. You remember that the early Jewish Christians were experiencing hardships and challenges and difficulty because of their faith in Christ and just their everyday life was hard. And so they were tempted to retreat. They were tempted to return to the old life. And the writer is saying, there's nothing there anymore. Don't go back. And gang, we talked about how that, man, that speaks to us today. Sometimes we're tempted to go back to the old life. Sometimes, you know, it's hard. Life following Christ, it can be difficult. We experience similar battles of being misunderstood, of being maligned and, and marginalized. And sometimes we're mocked and we're not invited to certain things. We're, we experience temptation just to, you know, ask like, what, what, is this even worth it? That we want to quit? Right? We get tired from the daily grind and the daily battles. Right? We can relate to them. They're, we experience discouragement. We can feel deflated, sometimes even depressed at times. And we can wonder, Lord, am I going to make it to the end of the year? Am I going to make it another week? Am I going to make it just through the day? Listen, if you, if you ever found yourself in that place, or maybe you find yourself in that place today, this book is for you. We, I hope that we come and we want to hear from God. That we desperately want to hear from the Lord. Uh, a word of direction, Lord, a word of encouragement, a word of, of wisdom, or maybe even a word of correction, a rebuke as we need it. See, the, you know, we, we need these things to know that this life of faith can be uh, run and it can be won. And, and hence, these examples that the writer gives us to encourage us. I mean, that's why we gather, isn't it? To seek to set our hearts and ears upon the Holy Spirit that would speak to us through His Holy Word. And so this morning, we're going to take some time to consider these four portraits. There's four of them. Four generations, too. A great-grandpa and a grandpa and a dad and a son, if you will. These four men who trusted God in their family and for their family in different aspects, and, and how we might then be encouraged to do the same today. So I draw your attention back to verse 17 through 19, where we come back to Abraham. We talked about him last week. We're coming back to him again. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, notice that when he was tested, he offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. And God said of Isaac, notice, in Isaac your seed shall be called. But Abraham concluded that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. Now we met Abraham and his wife Sarah last week. Their backstory and, and really the others are found in the book of Genesis. And if you're not familiar with them, that's okay, but I do want to highly encourage you this week if you have some time or even make some time to go back and reread or read for the first time. Genesis from 
21 uh, and on, and it'll give you a great background of the people that we're talking about. But I'll, I'll give a little bit as we're talking and looking at these portraits. God had promised Abraham and Sarah something massive, you remember. And even though they were very old in years, they uh, presumably had tried for decades to have a baby. Uh, we uh, understand that they just physically, medically, whatever, they just could not have a baby. And then God came and gave them this crazy promise that they were going to have a baby, and through that baby, an entire nation was going to come. And when they heard that promise at their age, they laughed, but God wasn't joking. Right? At their age, they're probably looking for diapers for themselves, not for a baby, right? <laughs> Yet their baby boy, Isaac, and his name means laughter, came. And God told them that it was through Isaac, there in verse 18, that, that the seed or the start of a nation would happen. Isaac, God wasn't joking, and Isaac, though, was the punchline. And so days and weeks and years passed from that receipt of the promise, nothing. And so to them, it seemed like God had forgotten that God said he's going to do something and it hadn't been done yet. And so they thought, oh, well, let's help God. Abraham and Sarah grew impatient. They devised their own plan to, uh, to make God's promises happen. But we know, and you can read, it wasn't what God wanted to do. It wasn't how God wanted to do it. They ran ahead of the Lord. In one sense, we might say, oh, it seemed like it worked. Abraham had a baby, had a boy. Through a surrogate by the name of Hagar, he had a boy by the name of Ishmael. But Ishmael wasn't the one that God promised. And it wasn't the way that God wanted to work. It wasn't the way that God wanted to bless Abraham and bring the nation about. And we understand that Ishmael then represents what our flesh produces. When we want to try to do things our way, it's a product of our way, our flesh. And we make something. And yet, in the eyes of the Lord, God says that's illegitimate. And He doesn't recognize that. And that's why in verse 19 or verse 17, it says his only begotten son. Well, we know that's not his only begotten son. And yet in the eyes of the Lord, Isaac was. See, Isaac was the promised son, the seed that God said he would bring the blessings through. So, imagine that day when Isaac's born. The laughter that came wasn't a laughter of doubt or incredulous. It was a laughter of joy. A laughter of wonder. And you fast forward now in some time, and here comes God once again, comes to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, that son 
whom you received by a promise, even though you weren't physically able, and I said was going to happen, and it happened, I want you to take him, Isaac, and go and do what no one else was ever asked to do, would ever do, I want you to take him and offer him as a sacrifice. What's interesting is that the the writer doesn't focus on the the morality of the command or what would appear to be to some uh, some type of cruel test of loyalty. The writer doesn't explore those aspects. Instead, the, the author, the Holy Spirit, has the author focus on the fact that Abraham had to trust God once again despite what appeared to be a contradiction, by the way, once again to the circumstances between what was promised and now what was being asked. And what we learn from Abraham, and we'll unpack this a little bit more, is that, gang, we can come to a place in our faith where we trust God with the people we love or the things that we love. That we in trust to God, the relationships, even the ones that God has given us. After decades of waiting, God finally blessed them. And now, years into his life, God says, I want, I want you to take your son, your only son, and offer him up. As I mentioned, God doesn't acknowledge the product of our flesh. But notice these two phrases. First, that Abraham was tested. When he was tested. And the second phrase, notice, that concluded that God was able, or concluding that God was able, verse 19. Church family, understand that our faith will be tested. And as the saying goes, a faith that is not tested cannot be trusted. And so there are times where our faith will be put to the test. Now, God doesn't test your faith or mine so that we will fail, that we'll fall, that it will you know, fall apart, but rather God tests our faith so that we can see Where's the source of that faith? And if the source of that faith is anchored to God, then it can be trusted. That it can be trusted. Now granted, this was a very unique test. And to the unbeliever, it is very strange. It's a very odd thing. But to the believer, to the Christian, we understand that many of the portraits that we look at in the Old Testament there is an aspect where they are pictures of Christ. They are foreshadows. They're symbolic. They they are stories that point us to the Messiah to come. And such is this picture. This test produced a testimony. One, One of faith that points us to the future that when when God the Father the, the author and the finisher, the, the father of our faith would sacrifice his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, 
in your place and mine. Now again, time doesn't permit. I would encourage you to go back and read in Genesis chapter 21 and 22. But in chapter 22, it tells us in verse 5 that when they're setting out to this place that God was going to show them on this mountain, Abraham at one point turns to the servants and he says to the servants, hey, I want you to stay here with the donkey. Just pull the, the brake. The lad and I, my son and I, are going to go yonder. We're going to go worship. And then he says to them, and we will come back to you. And so the servants wait, and the two go on. And as they're walking, Isaac, who we understand, he's not, don't think of him as like a, a little guy. He's not in first grade. Some would even suggest, we don't know exactly how old he is, but he's the one who's carrying the wood. And so maybe as young as 12, some would even suggest an older man, even some suggest perhaps even, you know, 30. But as Isaac's traveling with his dad and he's carrying the wood, uh, he says, hey, dad, we're going to go make this offering. I see the wood. I see you have uh, the fire, but where's the offering? a reasonable question. We're going to have a barbecue, but where's the steak? <laughs> and Abraham replies, son, God will provide himself a sacrifice. God will provide himself a lamb. Again, those statements, I submit to your statements of faith, the fact that he says to the servants, we're going to go worship and we will come back to you. As he says to the son, son, Listen, God will provide himself a sacrifice. Now again, Isaac, the one carrying the wood, trusting the father. There's no record of debate. There's no record of like, okay, are you sure? He just goes with the plan. And we understand from the account that Isaac trusts his dad as his dad is trusting the Lord. And it's this beautiful picture. You fast forward from that mountain to 2,000 years later to another mountain where Jesus is carrying the wood to the same mountain range, the same hillside, where Isaac was bound, where the only begotten was laid upon an altar, ready to be slain by the Father. That Jesus, carrying the very wood in which he would be crucified on, bound to, nailed upon a cross for your sins and mine, to be slain as a lamb for our sins. It, it's a powerful, beautiful picture that foreshadows what Christ did for us. Well, hopefully you know the account Abraham what he said came true. The analogy stops short of this, that Abraham, in faith, as he has this knife, he's about to sacrifice his son. God says, stop, Abraham. And there he would look, and a ram would be caught in the bushes. And in Isaac's place, they would take this ram and sacrifice it as this offering. God indeed had provided himself a sacrifice. 
for Abraham and Isaac, it's this ram. But fast forward again to Jesus and even the wording in the Hebrew that God would provide himself. You can read it as God would provide for himself. Or even God would provide himself as the sacrifice. See, verse 19 tells us that Abraham did all of that believing Believing and trusting God that even if Isaac had died, God would be able to raise his son to life again. And that, of course, is exactly what God did in his own son, Jesus Christ. He died, he was buried, and he rose again. And by faith, we believe upon what God has done for us. And when we do, then we too enter into the family of faith and we too enter into the same promise that we will be raised to life again one day. Okay, it's a beautiful portrait, a foreshadow of the gospel. And, and so we must not miss that very powerful aspect of that. And so I wanted to make sure we understood that part of it, but there's also something else here that, that speaks to my heart. That as God asked Abraham, if you will, to give back to him, God said to Abraham, give back to me what you love so much. Gang, what happens in our hearts when God seemingly takes away the very thing that he had promised you. When God comes to you and says, give back to me the thing or the person or this relationship that you love so much. You know, the question really is, is what happens? Can we, and can we willingly, with faith, and trust that God has a greater purpose, that you would lay upon the altar that thing that you've waited for, that thing that you have prayed for, that thing that, that you have you've fallen in love with, and God says, set it on the altar. Well, certainly there's a, a, a place where we're to cast our idols down, the thing that's, uh, you know, despicable to the Lord and despises God, our sins, we're to cast them away and lay them down. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when it's something you've prayed for, you've hoped for, you've wished for, you've waited for, you've been patient for, for so long, and then finally God opens the door and God provides it, and then one day the Lord says, are you willing to give that back to me? See, Abraham believed that God would be able to raise Isaac from the dead, and it says, in which he also received him in a figurative sense. That, that Abraham made a connection to the first promise that though he himself, if you will remember, an old man, one foot in the grave, and yet God brought life from that. And because God did that in his life before, he believed that God would do that again. And he believed and held on to the fact that God said through Isaac, the rest of the seed will come. The rest of the nation will come. 
there is a figurative sense in which God asks us to do this. Gang, for me, it was my kids. When Noah was a baby, I worried tremendously about him. And so I would stay up often and make sure he's breathing. And, and I would check in on him often. And if he began to cry, I would immediately go and like grab him. And I just worried and fretted. And, and one day the Lord would speak to my heart and say, are you willing to give Noah back to me? And I have to confess to you, my answer was no. No, Lord, I'm not. And the Lord would speak into my heart and say, he's not yours. His life belongs to me. And it was such a, I don't know the right word, a moment of growth, a moment of surrender, a moment of just giving that thing that I love to the Lord. And so I found myself figuratively, in my mind's eye, if you will, putting no on the altar. I, I kind of want to grab him like Lion King. Here, you know. <laughs> and I had to do that with him, and I had to do that with Rebecca and Nehemiah and Ben. I had to do that with my marriage. And I thought, oh, the one time I'm good. But I had to do that as they started school. I had to do that when they started high school. I had to do that when Noah and Nehemiah still remember when they wanted to go ride bikes with Pastor Kevin, you know, 150 miles up to Hato Point and down to the south and back. And I remember being so worried. They're just kids. What happens if a car hits them? Well, I wanted to say, no, just stay inside and play Legos where it's safe, you know, Yet God has called us to, if you will, to surrender the thing that we love the most. Sometimes it's just figuratively. It's an act of worship. So for me, it was to put my marriage on the altar, to put my family on the altar. It was to put my career, my, our church, my very life, to recognize, Lord, none of this belongs to me. Even my own life doesn't belong to me. It's all yours. Now again, I confess, it wasn't the, you know, that I, the, the first time, like, all right, you know, it was easy to release these things. I like control. You know, all that we are and all that we have, it belongs to the Lord. What beloved thing has God asked you to entrust to Him? Oh, it may be the hardest test of your faith yet. Abraham was tested. But the test wasn't for him to fail. The test wasn't for him to fall. But it was to prove to him that God is faithful. King, church family, we can trust the Lord and encourage you to trust the Lord with the very people and relationships that you love, the very thing that you've waited and pursued. 
Abraham encourages us to give that to the Lord. In verse 20, we read, by faith, Isaac. So here's the son now. Isaac blessed his sons, Jacob and Esau, concerning things to come. And so here we move to the next portrait on the wall. And the next picture is the son. It's Isaac as an older man. And it, he has a family of, you know, of his own now. They're fraternal twins. Esau was the first to come out. Then, you know, Jacob right after. And, and they're not identical. They're different because we find out that Esau was a hairy guy. A manly man who liked the outdoors, who liked to hunt, and he liked yakiniku. Right? And, and his brother Jacob was more of a, of a homeboy. Not a homeboy, but a homebody. Right? He was a smooth-skinned, smooth talker. He's a schemer, trickster, a jokester. Esau kind of hung with dad a bit, and Jacob hung with mom more. And in Genesis chapter 27, we read about this unfortunate family drama that ensued, that took place. Now, I find it interesting that the writer, when he recounts it, doesn't give us any of the details of that, doesn't dive into that. It's just one verse, one line, that by faith, here's Isaac as an old man, and after all that's happened to him, it says he blessed his two boys. Concerning the things of the future, there is a crazy backstory. If you don't know it, I highly encourage you to go back and read it. But part of that backstory was where the older son Esau trades his birthright, that which is his, because he comes, he came first, and yet had a disregard. And he traded it for some frijoles, right? He, for bean soup. I don't care. You can be the firstborn. I just, I'm hungry. <laughs> and then here comes mom, who hatches this plan to trick dad into giving his blessing to Jacob. And she tells Jacob, this is what we should do. And Jacob doesn't say, man, mom, that's crazy. I don't think so. He's like, let's do it. Let's roll. They pull it off. They're going to dupe dad. You know, when I was a kid, my dad often would be so tired, he'd come home from work and he'd just crash out on the couch. And I had learned it was the perfect time to ask him for things. Because he would be half awake, half asleep, not paying attention. I'm like, dad, uh, can I get 20 bucks for the arcade? Yeah, yeah. Dad, I'm going to go to the movies with Robert. Is that okay? We're going to be out all night. Yeah, yeah. You know. Then later on I could tell him, well, you said it was okay. You know. Jacob, with the help of his mom, hatched this scheme. They duped Dad. They bluffed for this blessing. And here's what's amazing to me. And it's odd. We talked about it in our men's study a couple weeks ago. After Isaac, after dad finds out what happened, he doesn't recant the blessing. He's not like, what? You boys, why I oughta, you know. 
go get the paddle. He doesn't call foul. He doesn't change his mind. It's not until we fast forward to the insight the Holy Spirit gives us here that we realize, oh, that by faith, that even then Jacob was trusting the Lord, even in the midst of the dysfunction of his family, even though his wife and his kids and all of, all of the scheming, all of the trickery, all of that stuff, he's, he just we realized God was still in control. And God would use the dysfunction of his family to bring about the purposes of God and the plans of God. And gang, I, I am so encouraged in that. Because often I tell people, I don't really have a family tree. It's like a bush, crazy, overgrown something. You know. My parents divorced when I was younger. Multiple remarriages. You know, super blended family. Half-siblings and step-siblings. And, and yet, encouraged to know that God will use and can use the dysfunction of our family and still accomplish His purposes in our life. And Isaac, we find out, trusted the Lord in that. Be, through the blunders, through the backstabs, through the burden that his own family created, or even the ones he created for himself, right? He's not, it's not as though he's completely innocent here. So his son deceived him. Jacob deceived his brother. Rebecca played favorites with her kids. Esau's main concern was just feeding his flesh. And yet through it all, God worked through all of that family drama and still blessed him. And he still was able to bless others. You know, it's been said that God's blessings come not because we deserve them, but rather because we need them. Do you need God's blessings today? <laughs> I'm so glad that God doesn't bless me on the basis of me deserving it. I'd have none. I'd have to borrow from you. How sad it would be if God only blessed us because we deserved it. See, God blesses us even in our messes. And and. Isaac reminds us, gang, that we can, by faith, trust God even when you've been hurt, even when you've been taken advantage of, even when it's come from the hands or the scheme of your own family. And sometimes it happens that way, and it's hard, and it hurts. Yet you need to understand that God is still on the throne. And we can have faith even when our family is faulty. Even when we live in great dysfunction. Your story may have begun that way, but with the Lord, listen, it doesn't have to continue. God doesn't want it to continue that way, or certainly not end that way. God loves to redeem and restore God says, I can take the years, the locusts, the things that have been destroyed and change them for you. Ashes into beauty. 
And even those hard experiences, God can bring blessing from them. And so I'd like to encourage you as the Lord encouraged me to trust Him. That He has blessings for you concerning the things to come. As He blessed them concerning the things to come. Your story's not over. God's still writing the script of grace in your life and in your marriage and in your family, you know, it, he's not done. And so Isaac reminds us of that. Then verse 21, we read, By faith Jacob, when he was dying, he blessed each of the sons of Joseph, worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. So now here, it's the next generation. We now focus in on Jacob the schemer, the trickster, the smooth-skinned, smooth-talker, the one voted you know, class clown in his high school years. But we fast-forward in time for him and, and realize he didn't remain how he started. His story has changed because of the grace of God. And his life has changed, and his identity, in fact, has changed. He's no longer known as Jacob. His new name, anybody know for a thousand points? What's his new name? Israel, very good. There's this time where he just literally wrestled with the Lord. Him and God went at it. Now God would bless him and literally his walk would never be the same. But in that blessing, it wasn't as though from that point on, everything was easy. He still lived a hard life. There were still stresses and sorrow. There were still family issues, his own sons. There was jealousies and just different things that happened. And so now we fast forward at the end of his life. And it's not, it's a scenario not too unlike the one we just read about his own dad. There's a slight difference here, though, is that Jacob is grandpa now. He has 12 sons. And they have many kids. He's, you know, he has grandchildren. And now in his old age, he's coming to the end of his life. He's walking upon this cane. It's the old wrestling injury. Now, God had used one of his sons, one he thought was dead, one that the other brothers didn't like, Joseph. And and Joseph's story was amazing. Joseph, God would use him to save the rest of his family. And, and, And Joseph has his own family now, too. And they all live in Egypt together. They're not in the promised land where they began. Jacob, Israel is getting old now. He's become sick. And so he calls for the family to come in. He wants to give them his final blessing, his final words. It's Genesis chapter 48, by the way. And and so Joseph, his son, says, Dad, I want you to meet my sons. I want you to meet my boys, Manasseh and Ephraim. 
And so when the boys come in and they're going to meet Grandpa, Jacob's there and he's old, he's leaning on his staff and here comes Joseph and his two sons and he's like, here you go. And the scriptures tell us that when Jacob goes to bless Joseph's boys, he crosses his hands. And instead of placing the right hand, at that time it was considered the right hand of honor, on the oldest, he places it on the younger and his left hand on the older. And so Ephraim, the younger, gets the blessing that was entitled to the older, and Manasseh, the older, gets the lesser blessing, if you will. And, and, when, and when Jacob goes to do that, Joseph's watching, he's like, no, Dad. You, gotta, you got your hands wrong. And, and Dad says, I know, son. I know what I'm doing. But this is what God wants me to do. It may not make sense to you right now, but there's going to be a day where it will. It'll make sense later. See, it wasn't the culture. It wasn't the custom of the times. It wasn't their family tradition. The firstborn was the one who received the double blessing. That's the norm. That's, that, we would even say that's scriptural. And yet Jacob had learned, and perhaps even learned the hard way, to trust God even when it's counter to culture, even when it goes against the family tradition. Well, by the way, when Jesus comes on scene, he still continues that Jesus himself was countercultural. Who he spoke to, where he went, who he touched, who he healed, who he helped. Often it was shocking to the disciples. You didn't dare touch a leper. You didn't dare talk to a woman. You certainly didn't talk to a Samaritan. You didn't really help a, a Syrophoenician lady. To dine in, in a sinner's house, to be hanging out with a tax collector, to be associated with that lady and those family. I mean, he crossed all kinds of cultural boundaries, all kinds of social norms. He would blow through. It was very shocking. And yet for the sake of love, for the sake of connection, Jesus crossed these boundaries and these barriers. You know, sometimes God calls us to trust Him by faith even when others are going in the opposite direction, even when it means that you have to cross a cultural barrier, a family tradition. It doesn't make sense to the world around you. That's not how the others do it. That's not how we used to do it. Your family used to do it. It's certainly not how the world does it. They have a whole completely different set of values. And so it was normal for the firstborn to be blessed. But here we find it's the second that receives it. And by the way, I don't want to ignore this. It's such a, another picture and foreshadow of the gospel. Because arguably it wasn't unique to the family. We just read how even the younger got blessed above the older. It, there's a pattern here. And the pattern is 
where the second born is blessed above the first born. Why is that? I submit to you it's a spiritual picture. Remember I told you that God doesn't recognize the product of our flesh. And the firstborn is a picture of, if you will, of our physical birth. And the secondborn is a picture of our spiritual birth. And God blesses our spiritual birth when we are born again. Esau and Ishmael, they represent the flesh, the firstborn. When we're born again, we enter into the inheritance and the blessing that God has for us as children of faith. Ephraim, the secondborn, it means fruitfulness. And so here we're encouraged, we're reminded, trusting the Lord, even when it's counter to culture, even when it goes against some of the things our own family has done. And then lastly, we read about Joseph, by faith Joseph when he was dying. So it's the same phrase, by faith Jacob when he was dying, Joseph when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. It's interesting to me that of all of the amazing events that the writer could have focused in on with Joseph's life, of him being in that pit, of him being betrayed by his brothers, of him being sold into slavery into Egypt, of him living at Potiphar's house and being in the jail, rising to second command of all of Egypt next to Pharaoh. I mean, all of these amazing things that the writer fast-forwards and scrolls all the way through the story to the very end, skips all of that good stuff. And he comes to this point where Joseph's about to die. And he gives some, a word about his bones. He's the last of this family line. It's great-grandpa, grandpa, dad, and now Joseph. And like his own dad, the writer uses the phrase that when he's dying, this past week was an interesting week for me. We we had services on Sunday, had a rehearsal for a wedding on Sunday night. We had the wedding on Monday, a reception on Tuesday. I did a funeral on Wednesday. We had a baby born on Thursday. It's like all of the things in ministry happening in one week. And so at this funeral, I, I was very humble. They, the family called me and said, hey, Pastor Rick, dad's passed and and he asked for you to come and do the service. And it's a family that hasn't been around for a while because of COVID, and he was sick. And so we, we held this service for our dear brother in Christ, Tatsuya Ikuichi-san. You know, not everyone gets the gift of time before you pass to call on your family to express your last, you know, kind of word and, and thoughts. But he had that gift, and part of that was... When I pass, please have Pastor Rick come. Now, Joseph has that same gift. He knows he's about to, to enter into eternity, and so he calls together the family, and, 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 he, and he gives this 
encouragement and, and all of the life that he lived there in Egypt. He endured in Egypt. He even thrived in Egypt. And yet he, he encourages them concerning the future. This isn't our home. We're going to be leaving soon. 400 years later that happened. And by faith, Joseph encourages his family in his passing, gang, something better is coming. He lived in a pagan land. He was surrounded by pagan gods, surrounded by pagan customs. It was very worldly, and yet he lived for the Lord. And then he leaves this legacy. In his passing moments, he imparts this gift of faith to his family. The next 400 years is going to be rough. And the children of Israel would have it hard. But they would honor what Joseph asked them to do. The day came when Moses steps in and they walk out, they carry Joseph's bones. Okay, my time's getting away from me. Let me just phrase it more of a question for us to consider. What is the message of faith? that you and I are imparting to our family? What's the legacy we leave for the next generation? Maybe it's not your own kid. Maybe it's the Sunday school kids. Maybe it's your, your younger siblings. Maybe it's a friend. But it's something by faith we need to consider. Again, the Lord calls us to trust Him with the very thing that we love. And sometimes it, it's a person, it's a relationship. And you're holding on so tight and God says, that belongs to me. He belongs to me. She belongs to me. And we can trust the Lord even in the dysfunction of our family, even when you've been hurt, when you've been taken advantage of, to know that God's not done with you. We can trust the Lord even when it's countercultural, when everybody else is going in one direction and yet we seem to be going in an opposite direction. It doesn't make sense. Listen, we can still trust the Lord even when our own family seems to be going in a different direction. And to be challenged with the idea of what, of what gift of faith are we imparting that we leave behind? Joseph, again, endured through Egypt. And he knew, though, that that was not his home. And again, as we come to our time of communion, in many ways, communion represents all of these things. We get to be reminded of the fact that we are not our own. That our life, we have been purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what the cup represents. As we partake of the cup, it's a symbol, you know, Communion in many ways is uh, uh, an amplification of the Passover that the children of Israel would celebrate. A simple meal, but very significant and very symbolic. For them to remember their release, their emancipation day. They've been set free from bondage. And for us, spiritually, it's the same. We get to remember how we were released, how we were saved. 
the Lamb of God who gave his life for you and for me by his body and by his blood, that we are not our own. That if God was done with you, if this is all that God wanted just to save you, then you wouldn't be here. There's still a life of faith for us to live out. A story of grace and redemption that God's still writing. And so let's pray. We'll have the worship team come back up quickly and the ushers to serve. Father, thank you.